You are listening to Post Growth Australia podcast, the podcast where better is definitely better than bigger. Welcome back, all and sundry, to another episode of Post Growth Australia podcast. I have a habit of calling every episode on PGAP a special episode, so I guess we can add this episode to the special list. On Saturday 23rd of August, we will reach Earth Overshoot Day for 2020. Now, what does Earth Overshoot Day mean? Well, kind of what the name implies. The day marks a date when humanity's demand for ecological resources and services in a given year exceeds what the Earth can regenerate in that same year. Which means for the rest of 2020, we are using credit of the Earth's resources, which will create deficit in the future. Not the abstract future that will only affect our children, but an actual future which is already impacting now. Now, I've often been accused of being a pessimist, especially on mainstream media and particularly the ABC for some reason. Last year, the ABC kindly invited me to speak on national news on behalf of SPA for 2019's Earth Overshoot Day, which fell on July the 29th. Yes, folks, because of COVID, we have saved nearly a month of Earth overuse. Think of all that disruption in our lives, all those holidays and air miles and lack of movement and lost businesses and jobs and dreams, and this saved the planet by a month. Now imagine the pain and disruption that will be required to get to 31st December, particularly if the focus is only on consumption. So almost exactly one year and one month ago, I trotted off to the ABC Southbank Studios by hopping on a tram, back in the good old days when hopping on a tram was not the given death sentence that it is now. <laughs> I don't think the two news presenters liked me very much. They kind of looked at me like I was downing the party as I described the horrors of a growth-based society and uh, were particularly taken when I said I was child-free from the environment. That's a very pessimistic outlook, one of them said, and followed up. And I think I'm only slightly uh, paraphrasing here when she said, there is room for optimism. Some of us are recycling. Now, she already looked pretty crushed by that point, so I decided to bite my lip and humour them by saying, well, you know, that's a start. I couldn't bear to tell them that since Indonesia and China don't want our recycling anymore because we can't do it right, it has all been herded into landfill or due to Victorian safety legislation, into flammable warehouses, because Victoria doesn't do warehouses unless they're highly flammable these days, apparently. Kind of much like our apartment. <laughs> anyway, I digress. I mean, I tried to catch the issue for uh, the news as fluffily as I could without lying, but I mean, how much optimism can you spin from an earth overshoot day that falls nearly in the middle of the year? Uh, it was a pretty tricky hand to start off with. Uh, surprise, surprise, I haven't been invited back to the television studio since, so I might have to write that off as my 15 minutes of fame. For this special Earth Overshoot Day special, <laughs> I thought, wouldn't it be nice to talk to someone who is unafraid to go right deep into the underbelly of human psychology and civilization, with decades of experience in activism, academia, and with a strong connection to the natural world. Someone like, say, the very well-known, well-respected, slightly infamous Derek Jensen. 
So I was really very surprised with one of my most treasured friends actually knew Derek Jensen. Well, if you call an online contact, actually knowing someone. But, you know, I argue in the days of lockdown, you almost have to count that these days. And I was like, oh, uh, but Derek Jensen won't say yes. I'm just a little spa communications manager hosting the little fledgling radio show. And then Derek Jensen said yes. So that made me one happy, elated chappy. Derek and I had a very pithy conversation, as you'll hear soon. As much as one can in under an hour, we went there down many depths, including the perils of civilization, human and non-human trauma, the role of spirituality, and we even had a good debrief on the regressive left. There was just so much to say that this interview is a little longer than usual, but I'm sure the hour will just fly by. But first, we start off by a brand new track from the Melbourne band County Backwards. It's a track called Ice, which I believe is a fitting tribute to the ills, traumas and boredom of life in modern suburbia. Now, it may be too pessimistic for a mainstream use, but it is perfect for us at PGAP. Direction of a life Was it gonna take poor Deborah there? Now there's trouble with the law Her boyfriend's on the floor Saying Whoa! Everything's okay From loneliness and made it something similar to despair. People don't know how to be happy in the sprawl. It's a monochrome world, she says, black by urban malls. Trouble anymore. It's the mind that's born. The Deborah says, Whoa, now and then everything's okay. Rolled away from loneliness and made it something similar to despair. And the police and the planners and the teachers helped take her there. Loneliness and made it something similar to despair. Welcome back to PGAP. Uh, as we all know, or as most of us know, it is going to be Earth Overshoot Day. Uh, at the end of the month. So I thought I'd bring in someone pretty well known who's uh, got a few things to say about uh, Earth Overshoot and the impacts of humans on nature. I'm virtually sitting here with Derek Jensen. Um, how are you, Derek? Oh, I'm doing well. Um, thank you so much for having me. How are you doing? Um, I'm doing as well as one can in lockdown. I can't say I'm bored. This is not boring times to be living in this world, I have to say, if, if, if that's one cold comfort saving grace. Um, for those who may not be completely familiar with you or your work, I feel sorry for those people. How would you describe yourself in about 10 key words? 
I guess to sum up my work in 10 words or less, it would be that this way of living won't last. And when it's over, I would prefer that there is more of the natural world left rather than less. So um, your love of the natural world um, shows up as you are the co-founder of Deep Green Resistance, a movement which I have immense amount of respect for. Uh, for the listener who may not have come across DGR, how would you describe the main objectives of this movement? Over the last few decades, mainstream environmentalism has really been hijacked to not be about protecting wild places and wild beings quite so much as it once was. And it's become more about attempting to sustain civilization and sustain this culture that is killing the planet. And we are explicit in our biocentrism. Uh, we are also explicit in recognizing that from the beginning, the dominant culture has been based on destroying the planet and been based on converting the living planet into comforts or elegancies that at this point we we take for granted. So it's it's really about the health of the planet is more important than the health of the culture. It's a view that's shared by so many people who I've interviewed so far on um, Post Growth Australia podcasts. Uh, we've discussed various solutions to this, including post-growth, the steady-state economy, ecocentric economic models, and the importance of access to education, family planning, and empowerment of women. Um, you appear to go a couple of steps further from where we have so far gone at PGAP um, by appealing to the, dare I say, the dissolution of civilization. Uh, and from your perspective, why is civilization the enemy of our survival and well-being? Well, first off, I just want to thank you for all of your, all of those other interviews that you've done and all of the, every one of those things you said is just incredibly important. And I, I want to thank you for giving voice to those ideas. Oh, thank you. <laughs> and then sometimes people ask me how I became an environmentalist in the first place. And it was really when I was in second grade, that year there was a subdivision went in next to where I lived. And prior to that, it had been meadows. And as they turned it into a subdivision, I remember thinking, where will the meadow larks go? Where will the cottonwood trees go? Where will the garter snakes go? Where will all the animals go? And I remember thinking that they can't keep doing this. They're forcing these others out of their homes and, and eventually they will have no homes. And so my point is that I didn't have this language, but I recognized even as a seven-year-old that you can't have infinite growth on a finite planet. And then also, you know, in my 20s and 30s, and especially in my early 30s, I became an environmental activist. And so many of the other activists I knew, we were all just trying to protect this or that piece of ground. I mean, there's a famous line by David Brower that all of our victories are temporary and all of our losses are permanent. The point is that we were all just hanging on by our fingernails, trying to protect this or that place we loved, waiting for civilization to come down. And I want to bring in something else, which is they say one sign of intelligence is the ability to recognize patterns. One of the first written myths of Western civilization is, is Gilgamesh, who was deforesting the hills and valleys of Iraq in order to build a great city. And 
Iraq was heavily forested. The Arabian Peninsula was oak savanna. The Near East was heavily forested. Uh, North Africa was heavily forested. And, you know, if you just, oh, I think it was Plato. I think it was Plato who was complaining because deforestation was harming water quality in ancient Greece. These are not new problems. These are, have been going on for a long time. Why are there no penguins in the Northern Hemisphere? The reason there are no penguins or their equivalent is because they were eliminated. That's what this culture is doing is systematically converting the living planet into dead products. You know, I don't think that my work is particularly cognitively challenging. It's recognizing that if you have uncountable salmon and then you can count them and then there's five million and then there's one million and then there's a half a million, and then there's a quarter million, that's a troubling trend. Another way to look at this is if, if space aliens had come down from outer space and they were systematically doing to the planet what the dominant culture is doing, we would all know what to do, which is we would do everything we could to stop the system that is killing life on this planet, that's vacuuming the oceans, that's changing the climate. If it was external forces doing this, we would stop them. But because it's the system into which we were raised, we suddenly get very confused. So DGR is really based on on really the old notion of the planet is primary and and without a planet, you don't have any social system whatsoever. First of all, um, it's been a good history lesson for me. It almost seems like uh, uh, several thousand years ago, um, deserts were a lot rarer than they are now. Um, it's it's the shifting baseline, isn't it? Like um, you just grow up used to something, so you feel that it's always been there when that is not the case. You know, people take snapshots of islands and uh, see that how, how pretty island is because they see all that green grass when, in fact, it's uh, more like, a, in ecological terms, a desert itself, isn't it? Yeah, there, there are. There's a, a really important book that I read 30 years ago is um, Sea of Slaughter by uh, Farley Mowat. And one of the reasons that it was so important to me is because what he had done was for North America, he had uh, combined all sorts of contemporary accounts of early European explorers talking about what they saw. And so it's accounts of flocks of passenger pigeons so large that they darkened the sky for days at a time, or so many whales in the ocean that it looked like it was foggy all the time from their breath. Uh, schools of fish on the Hudson River, so big that if you put your net in, they would carry your net away. Down near uh, Galveston in Texas, in the United States, there were packs of wolves that were like 200 wolves. And now most packs are much smaller. The reason they could be so large is because there was so much prey. And so we have, the world is so pauperized from what it was before. Um, it doesn't matter where you are, the, the early accounts of European explorers are almost unbelievable. All over the world, things, I mean, just in the past 50 years, wildlife around the world has gone down by about 40 or 50%. And certainly when you see the graphs of uh, humans and their livestock uh, over the past 100 years, the amount of uh, wildlife just all going in the opposite directions and not the right directions, in my opinion. Um, so I always ask people what a typical day 
in someone's community and their day-to-day life uh, might be in your ideal vision. So um, what might that look like? Well, where I live, I mean, we actually have a pretty good idea of what it was like because the Talawa Indians lived where I live now for at least 12,500 years. They've been carbon dated back to that long. And when the Europeans arrived in 1820, 1830, the place was a paradise. And I want to be really clear. I'm not saying that their lives were perfect. I'm not saying that they never did anything bad. I'm not saying that they were, quote, noble savages, end quote. What I'm saying is that they lived here for 12,500 years. And amazingly, the population here where I live was about half of what it is now. It was actually pretty big because there were so many salmon. They were fairly sedentary because there were so many salmon. In the summer, they would move up upland a little bit, you know, live off the land there. There are people who argue that hunter-gatherers have no social rules, but that's just nonsense. But I know for the Dakota, for example, that if people would kill buffalo out of season, there would be strong prohibitions against that. And they could be kicked out of their society, which is essentially a death penalty because you can't live by yourself, really. The, the key thing is recognizing what the land can live. And I, I've seen a lot of people say, well, you know, Indians affected their land base too, which is true. Everybody affects their, their land base. And they say because they affected their land base, they'll literally say, therefore, it's okay for Boise Cascade to clear cut or therefore it's okay for us to do whatever we want. But it's really the question is, they made land use decisions based on the idea that they were going to be living here for the next 500 years. And if you make land use decisions based on the idea that you'll be living in place for the next hundreds and hundreds of years, you're going to make different land use decisions. You're not going to wipe out the salmon. You're not going to put pesticides in the soil. You're not going to do things that will harm the capacity of the land to take care of you. We talk a lot in DGR, or I talk a lot about being biocentric and ecocentric. But the truth is that long-term biocentrism, long-term ecocentrism are ultimately anthropocentric too, long-term, because you know this way of life has made it so there can be an awful lot of humans for a little while. It's made it so we can drive really fast, we can fly around the world, we can communicate around the world, but those aren't going to last. This is a one-time blowout that uh, is based, as you know, based on drawdown, based on overshooting carrying capacity and permanently reducing that carrying capacity. So it, it kind of annoys me that sometimes because I'm biocentric, people will say, gosh, you know, you're really anti-human. And that's just not true at all. I think that the humans who are alive 100 years from now will vastly prefer that we would have been much more biocentric rather than really technocentric. It has never made sense to me to destroy runs of salmon that you might need to eat tomorrow. That just makes no sense to me. And fundamentally, I also came to being an environmentalist because I'm fundamentally conservative, by which I don't mean I'm, you know, anti-choice or doesn't mean I'm, you know, some of the things people associate with conservatism. What it means is that I just think it's a really bad idea to destroy 
habitat that you might need tomorrow. That just seems really stupid to me. Yeah, you've suggested, from what I've read, that some or much of the dark side of human nature is brought about by civilization and many Western notions around materialism and competition amongst <laughs> many other of our malaises. Um, on reading Lyle Watson's book, Dark Nature, it did open my eyes somewhat to the darker side of animal groups as well as some um, human tribal groups. As you said before, no one's perfect. Um, I also recall watching a Jane Goodall documentary where a chimpanzee community broke down and half the mob were uh, uh, massacred. So I was just interested to what extent do you think that moving away from civilization will mitigate our shadow sides? And do you think that it will also force us to look at certain aspects of our shadow sides more square on? I have a question as to whether the behavior of any non-humans on the planet at this point is representative of their behavior under normal circumstances. Because non-humans become traumatized just as humans do, and traumatization leads to deformations in behavior. See, I believe, for example, that our entire culture is suffering from what Judith Herman would call complex post-traumatic stress disorder and that much of our ideology is based on unmetabolized trauma and is based on the world not as it is, but as it is perceived by those who have been profoundly traumatized and raised in. For example, okay, so the difference between PTSD and complex PTSD, according to Judith Herman, is that PTSD could happen if, if a bad thing happens to you. So you're caught in a, 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 a huge fire then after that, you could be nervous around things that are flammable. Or let's say one time when you're seven years old, you are attacked by a dog. For the rest of your life, you might be scared of dogs. So that would be PTSD. But then Judith Herman asked, what happens to people who are in long-term confinement, like prisoners, like sufferers of domestic violence for, for decades? You can come to believe that all relationships are based on hierarchy. And you can come to believe that the, might, the mighty do as they will and everybody else gets by as they can. What that is, that really describes the selfish gene theory. That describes sort of naked capitalism. That describes this notion of being highly competitive. And, and my point having to do with non-humans is that when non-humans have been systematically had their land stolen from them. They've been, they've been made refugees in their own homes. They've had their habitat destroyed. They've been systematically hunted. They're not going to act as they once did. Ruth Benedict tried to ask, why are some cultures good and some cultures not good? Why are some cultures uh, treat women and children well? Some treat women and children poorly. Some cultures are pretty peaceful. Some cultures are not so peaceful. And what she found, it wasn't anything like relative wealth or poverty. It wasn't uh, house size. It wasn't whether they were matrifocal or patrifocal, which really surprised me because I kind of thought that patriarchy was root of all evil, but it's not the root of all evil. It's just some of it. You know, we have this idea that humans are fundamentally selfish. Some people believe that. And we also have this idea that humans are fundamentally social. And some people believe that. But the truth is that they're both true. And the good cultures have figured out how to destroy the dichotomy between them and to make them identical. And the way you do that is by praising behavior that benefits the group as a whole and by disallowing behavior 
that benefits the individual at the expense of the group. What would be a food you could gather where you live? Historically, uh, murnongs, <laughs> um, warrigal greens, um, chocolate lily bulbs. Okay, so the point is that in a healthy functioning culture, you might go out one day and you would catch a bunch of these particular, not catch, but you would gather a bunch of these particular bulbs. And you don't come back to the group and then hoard them. You come back and give them to everybody else. And in so doing, you build up social capital. And the reason you can do this is because, you know, tomorrow I'm going to go out gathering and I'm going to gather a bunch of one of the other plants you named, and then I'm going to hand those out. I mean, think about this within a family. If, if you're all sitting at dinner with a, with a healthy functioning family and somebody says, Junior, can you please pass the potatoes? Junior is not going to say, you can give me a dollar for them. I mean, that's not how it works. We understand this within a healthy functioning family, that we all work together. And healthy functioning communities understand this too. And healthy functioning cultures understand this too. You want to disallow behavior. And what she found is that it really comes down to how a culture handles wealth. That if it handles it through what she called a siphon system, whereby wealth is constantly siphoned from rich to poor, then everybody in the community is going to be secure because they know they're going to eat. If, on the other hand, it's handled through what she called a, a, a funnel system, whereby wealth is constantly funneled from poor to rich, then everybody's going to be insecure and at each other's throats. So Culture Make-Believe, my book, was supposed to be a five-page introduction to an encyclopedia of hate groups. Um, but I asked, what's a hate group and how do they form? And the book just exploded. And where I eventually came to is if you have an economic system that's based on competition, as long as it's constantly expanding, then that's okay because everybody's getting some piece of the pie. But as soon as there's any sort of contraction whatsoever in this economic system, because it's based on competition, you and I are competing for the same dollar to pay for rent or the same scrap of food. Suddenly, we're at each other's throats. And then if I can find an identifiable difference, such as color of skin, such as different sex, such as anything to differentiate you, and if I can use that to my advantage, I'm going to, because we're not talking at that point about luxuries. We're talking about survival. And then once you get in the pattern, once we get past survival, well, now it feels like survival for me to have enough money to go on vacation or feels like survival for me to have enough money to send my kid to a really good school, you know, whatever. So what began as not seeming necessities can then, can then start to feel like necessities. I mean, for God's sake, there are, I know we're jumping topics here, but um, I just read this thing not very long ago that they did a, a survey of young, young people in the UK, and they found that the young people considered good Wi-Fi access to be more important than sunlight. Wow. It just goes to show the, the, the addictiveness of, um, of being online too. So Yeah, absolutely. Um, speaking of psychology, <laughs> I'm currently reading your interview book, How Shall I Live My Life? And I must say that your conversation with uh, Daniel Edwards has blown me away. I'm, I'm still thinking about that, still stunned. Um, if I can summarise the gist of the interview, it is how a shift in focus in collective consciousness is a crucial element to saving or adapting to the world. And I'd like to know your thoughts on the role of that spirituality and shifting consciousness 
play in imagining a post-growth world because it always makes me think even if we, for example, manage to find a way to um, get rid of Rupert Murdoch, um, we need to change our modalities of thinking and being so we just don't create ever more Rupert Murdochs and repeat the same mistakes again. Well, I think you're absolutely right. We need to, to fundamentally shift. And, and I'm really glad you brought up the whole question of spirituality too, because you know I, I have been a critic of monotheism through much of my career. And I think that there are many things to critique in many organized religions. That said, I'm not alone in saying that the secularization of our worldview, I should say, has been a complete disaster for the natural world and the human psyche. You know, when I say I'm not alone in saying that, there are many people who have talked about I mean, Carolyn Merchant wrote the book, The Death of Nature, where she talks about how even, even though Christianity is fundamentally a, uh, is not an earth tradition in many ways. You know, it has a distant sky god instead of the divinity being inherent in, in the redwood trees and in the soil. And on the main, it's been that, you know, the real action is in heaven somewhere else and God is somewhere up in the sky. Having said that, at least there was some power that was still larger than humans. What happened in the enlightenment is with the disappearance of God, basically science took over because there wasn't a fundamental shift. We still had, do you know the, the great chain of being? Not yet, not yet. Need well, here we go. need someone to talk about that. Yeah, off you go. Okay, so the, the great chain of being is this notion that there's a scale of perfection or scale of hierarchy where God is at the top and then angels and then humans, especially men, men, of course, of course and then women, and then indigenous people, and then animals, and then plants, and then, I don't know, precious gems, and then rocks, and then sand, or I don't know what, at the bottom. And the point is that they go from the pure mind of God, who is nothing but perfection and mind, down to soil, which is supposed to be dead matter, and is supposed to be not intelligent at all. And then the real battleground is in humans, where we're part body, part uh, part spirituality. And of course, under this idea, non-human animals don't have any intelligence. Plants don't have any intelligence. Of course, it's all nonsense. But mm. the, the, the point is that this, this hierarchy, even though science kind of destroyed the belief in capital G-O-D, God, um, it still has this hierarchy where abstract reason is considered superior to emotion. And I'm not, by the way, suggesting, like some postmodernists, that uh, you know, 2 plus 2 does not actually equal 4, but instead equals 5. I'm not suggesting that sort of nonsense. What I'm, <laughs> what I'm suggesting is that this culture, because we didn't have the spiritual transformation that went with that to switch it to an Earth-based religion, instead... Now we really valorize the machines. The machines are the new gods. I mean, really, whom are we serving at this point? You know, who's the real winner in the, the destruction of the planet? There's pretty much a one-to-one -one correspondence with machines go up as, uh, as nature goes down. And I saw this cartoon years ago that was this machine, this artificial intelligence is, 
gloating over the destruction of humans and saying, we had you at the toaster. Anyway. Um, <laughs> well, I never knew Terminator would be a documentary, but here we go. Here we go, exactly. I've become pretty convinced that, that humans have a need as strong as for community. We have a need for spirituality. We had a framework before, and for the last couple hundred years, our frameworks for meaning in the universe have been systematically devalued. I, I really believe that there needs to be some sort of revivification of spirituality, and it doesn't need to be that old-time religion. What we need to do is, okay, so far as I'm concerned, a religion has a couple functions. One of the functions is to help us get along, to teach us how to live. Another part of religion is to teach us how to experience the divine. And I think we have a need to experience the divine. You know, I just was thinking about this a lot yesterday. Somebody asked me, so what is the response to a surplus of complexity? What is the response to overwhelming complexity? You know, I love the line by David Ehrenfeld about how nature is not only more complex than we think it is, it's more complex than we're capable of thinking. I think that in a functioning society, our response to the overwhelming complexity of a forest, of a river, of another being in any case, an appropriate response is a sense of awe and wonder and a sense of what many traditions have called the great mystery. Instead of calling it the, you know, capital G-O-D, you can call it the great mystery that is just beyond that. As opposed to getting angry at it because you can't understand it and then um, get frightened and mow it down. <laughs> well, seems to be a bit of a response. <laughs> yeah, that, thank you for saying that because you just anticipated the, what it was going to take me five minutes to say and you said it in 20 seconds and that's perfect. <laughs> That, that was exactly the second half of my response. Oh, I mean, feel free to give the five-minute <laughs> no, <laughs> version no, no. of that if you like. <laughs> no, 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 no. You've done, it, you've done it better than I could have. It's great. And that's exactly it. And I think that we have, we are faced with overwhelming complexity in the real world. And, and there are appropriate and inappropriate ways to deal with it. And we, we, unfortunately, in this culture, deal with it by converting it into a parking lot, which is much less complex. Now, speaking of uh, complex and nuanced issues, so uh, the podcast is supported by Sustainable Population Australia. So part of this series is to capture everyone's own perspective on the issue of population. Uh, my understanding from what I've read is that uh, you see population as a, um, a third tier issue, definitely a problem, but not so much as consumption and capitalism. So I just want to ask whether you think that the three issues or all the issues are interconnected and do you think we can take an interconnected approach into tackling them? Um, thank you for asking it in that way. And thank you for asking it at all. Yeah, I mean, because as you know, I mean, in many cases, it is taboo to speak of the fact that there are more humans on the planet than the planet can support. And as soon as you say there are too many humans on the planet, then it's like, oh my God, you must hate babies. And actually, I, I don't really like babies, but... Um, uh, <laughs> Shh, that's our secret. Yeah, it <laughs> won't get uh, broadcast at all. Hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, that's, that's a, a, a joke, um, kind of. 
Anyway, the, 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 <laughs> I know it's the, nuance. As in life, it's uh, one's approach to babies, so it can be nuanced and complex. No, I mean, yeah. I, I like babies as long as they're somebody else's. You know, mm. um, it's like when I when I when my nieces were little, I had a great relationship with them. I mean, I still have a great relationship, but the the point is, I loved it because I lived close to where they lived, and so they could come to visit, and I could play with the five year old. But then, then when they would get tired and cranky, I could send them back to their mom and dad. So, you know, I like I like kids in small in small doses. I completely resonate, and uh, that is one of the reasons why I'm child free myself. So, yeah, yeah <laughs> good company here. Mm. And and also, honestly, I'm child free in part because I recognize as a kid that there's there are too many humans. So, first off, there is this thing called caring capacity. It's real, and humans have exceeded it. And every day that they're that we've overshot is lowering the carrying capacity for those who come after. Okay, having said that, it's not simple numbers. I mean, yes, there are too many humans. I'm not saying there aren't. And it really annoys me when people say that it's only consumerism. No, it's, it is how many times how much you use. Yes, people in the United States use, I don't know, 490 times as many resources as people in Uganda or whatever. It's it's a, it's a huge disparity. I'm not suggesting it's not. So it's both. It's, it's not either or, it's and. And then what underlies both of them, an inability to recognize limits and to allow for there to be any limits whatsoever on human behavior. And that's true for technology, that there can be no limits on technological escalation, I call it, instead of technological progress. Um, there can be no limits on how many humans there are, there can be no limits. It's an absolute refusal to recognize that anyone else on the planet, whether they're a blue whale or a grizzly or a wombat, has any right to exist and has any, and or an indigenous human being because, because the dominant culture has not accepted the boundaries of, of indigenous cultures either. It's invaded every culture. And I'm not suggesting that no indigenous cultures ever overpopulated. Um, sometimes they would have too many babies. But the thing is, they also, if you're planning on living in place for the next 500 years, you recognize that having too many babies cause some problems and you, one hopes, do something about it. And if you don't, then you're not going to be living there for 500 years. And so I think that population is... Yes, a problem, but I think that it's actually a symptom of this culture's inability to recognize boundaries and an inability to believe that ecological consequences apply to humans also. Um, speaking of people not getting nuance, <laughs> there have been inc an increasing number of people on the left who use uh, derogatory sound bites for those who hold radical or unorthodox position in environmental movement. Now, I've brought up on many uh, episodes the term eco-fascist, so I must have some, like, post-trauma <laughs> around this. But um, what, what, what do you think a, a, a lot of the name-calling uh, does from a, you know, damage perspective into... In, in, into putting inertia onto movements or, or stopping the good work that needs to be done? Um, 
So I'm sure that people have spat Malthusian at you too, right? Yeah, so I've uh, I, I've I've had it all. One develops a thick skin <laughs> when one chooses to uh, mention populations. So this is a real problem in the left these days. It's it's what a friend of mine calls uh, cootie politics. That not only can you not only are you unclean because you believe that there are more humans than the planet can support, but also then anybody who talks to you is also unclean by association. They get cooties from you. And then, um, and then anybody who talks to them gets cooties and then it keeps on going out like an infectious disease. Um, it, it sounds like playground uh, dynamics, you know, Ooh, you've got cooties. Oh, that's basically what it is. It's really immature and it's, an attempt to stifle uh, any sort of discourse. I think that people forget that human perpetual expansion is not possible on a finite planet. They forget that. And then instead of thanking you for reminding them, they get pissed off at you for reminding them because they don't want to remember. Because if they remember that, I mean, if, if you remember early on in this conversation, I started off by saying in second grade, I recognize you can't have infinite growth on a finite planet. It doesn't, this is not cognitively challenging. The only way we can convince ourselves you can have infinite growth on a finite planet is by constant reinforcement. It's like a friend of mine says that lies are very expensive to maintain because you have to constantly reinforce them and you can't allow the truth in. In order to maintain this way of living, we must tell lies to each other and especially to ourselves. And it's not necessary that the lies be particularly believable, but merely that they be erected as barriers to truth. And the fact, the idea that humans can go on expanding forever is one of those lies that we have to tell ourselves. Otherwise, the entire culture begins to collapse. The entire culture, I'm not saying that skyscrapers would collapse. What I'm saying is that the ideological support, the spiritual support for the culture would start to collapse as soon as you... As soon as you point out that other species exist, as soon as you point out that infinite growth on a finite planet is impossible, as soon as you point that out, and so you must be shut up. Anybody who breaks that narrative must be silenced because otherwise the other people are going to have to start questioning. Okay, it's like there's an environmentalist said to me many decades ago, 30 years ago, an environmentalist friend of mine said, so many environmentalists begin by wanting to protect a specific piece of ground, and they end up questioning the foundations of Western civilization. Because once you ask, why is it destroying this land? Well, for money. Okay. Well, why would you have an economic system that's based on destroying the land base? And once those questions start, they don't stop, which means people got to shut you down before you ask the first question. Well, thanks for that, Derek. I understand the regressive left a lot better now, <laughs> the internal tickings of the psychology. Now, um, this has been great. I feel like I'm in furious agreement of everything, but we do have to wind down now. So my last question for you is if people are interested in um, following you or following what you're writing or your campaigns or uh, DGR, what can they do and where can they go? Well, they can, they can uh, check out my books or they can also go to my website, which is 
derrickjensen.org, D-E-R-R-I-C-K-J-E-N-S-E-N.org. They can also go to, I think it's deepgreenresistance.org. Um, I, I mean, it is Deep Green Resistance. I just don't know if it's .org. And, um, and they can find out more about the organization. Um, and also, I would just like to say that uh, your questions have been fantastic. And if you'd ever ha want to have me on again, I'd be delighted. I can really see a part B to this. I feel we've just kind of <laughs> skimmed, even though we've been speaking for a while, we've just kind of skimmed over things, almost what like another section on spirituality, another section on uh, the post-growth and uh, another on, uh, I've been wanting to ask a question on, you know, direct activism and, and what that looks like for you. But I think that might have to be in a, another episode, unfortunately. So, Or fortunately. <laughs> yeah, sorry, should I say, for, unfortunate for now, but fortunately for the, for the future. Um, look, thank you so much, Derek. It's been an utter pleasure having you on. I'm not just saying that, I mean it. Well, thanks. It's, it's been such a pleasure to be on too. Your questions are great. Thank you. Your answers have been even better. <laughs> thanks. You are listening to Post-Growth Australia podcast, Earth Overshoot Day special. Um, thanks for sticking around for uh, the lengthy but really good interview, from my opinion, with uh, Derek Jensen. Um, a lot of good things that were, that were touched there. Uh, it's, it's always so great when I am in furious agreement with someone for so long. <laughs> it doesn't always happen, but... Um, really happens actually <laughs> but uh, th there we go there we go um, and before that we heard a track from Counting Backwards called Ice. Now haven't had a lot of correspondence from people getting back to me about things in their life that keep growing that they wish wouldn't keep growing so I really do encourage you to uh, send me your thoughts uh, don't be shy you can uh, send an email to media at population.org.au the funnier the better um, that's what we're here for to laugh through the tears and uh, next episode I will We'll be interviewing Robert Wanalo, uh, Kenya-born activist. And as I discovered 13 years ago, we were neighbours in Western Kenya back when I was living in Kenya for about six months. Um, so that's Robert Wanalo from Post Growth Institute will be joining us for next episode. Uh, I'm looking very much forward to that. I hope you do too. And uh, the other thing I just wanted to beseech you, if you have a spare couple of minutes, and for those in lockdown in Melbourne, um, there's plenty of time to do this. Uh, if you wanted to write us a review, now the more reviews we get, the more exposure we get, and the more likely that this kind of current affairs gets broadcast to the uh, willing masses. So uh, if you have Apple, if you use Apple Podcasts, please give us a review there. Otherwise, you can go to Stitcher. Uh, if all goes well, I'll put up a couple of buttons in the um, PGAP website where you can go to those places and give us a review. That would be absolutely fantastic. Really appreciate that. Um, you can even give a damning review if you like. It doesn't have to be nice. <laughs>